millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert, Professor Susan Doran. Professor Susan Doran is a British historian whose primary studies surround the reign of Elizabeth I, in particular the theme of marriage and succession. She has published and edited 16 books, notably Elizabeth I and Her Circle, she has also recently edited the catalog of a major exhibition at the British Library called Elizabeth and Mary, Royal Cousins and Rival Queens. Let's hear what she has to say about this epic feud between the cousin queens. Hello, Professor Doran. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. So could you start off by giving us a brief overview of what Elizabeth I's upbringing was like? Was she, how was she treated by her father and those around her at court? Well, first of all, she was called a bastard by her father in 1536 when she was not yet three years old uh, because her mother was executed on a charge of treason, adultery, and incest. So although she was heiress to the throne uh, through Henry VIII's First Succession Act. She was demoted 
And she was living in royal palaces, very much on the margins of the court. And it was only when Henry VIII married his last wife, Catherine Parr, that she spent any significant time at court in the household of Catherine. So nobody thought Elizabeth was going to be queen, but Henry did bring her back into the succession shortly before he died uh, in 1544 and said that um, if his two older children died without heirs, then Elizabeth would be the next monarch. But he didn't remove the bastardy taint and accusation, which was in law. So Elizabeth, when she actually did succeed to the throne, was in law a bastard. Wow. In contrast, in contrast, what was Mary's Stewart's childhood like? Where did she grow up? What was her ex- her experience in court? Well, Mary didn't lose her mother. She lost her father. When she was about a week old, her, her father died after, and not because of, but certainly after a humiliating defeat of his army against the English foes. And she was brought up by her mother, who was French, and lived in Scotland um, in a secure castle for most of the time, Stirling Castle, uh, because the danger was that the British or the English, as they then were, would come into Scotland, would whisk her away and marry her to Henry VIII's son, who was Prince Edward and later Edward VI of England. In during the reign of Edward VI, she was whisked off to France in order to avoid that marriage. And thereafter, she was brought up in France from 1548 onwards in the royal court. So she had a very different sort of life. She was brought up in this glittering Renaissance court where there was poetry and music. And she had a pretty good education for a woman at that time. And she was in line to marry the king's son, the Dauphin, Francois, Francis, whom she actually did marry in um, 1558. So she was both Queen of Scotland and going to be Queen of France as well. Elizabeth, nobody expected, would be Queen of anywhere. So when, when she does end up being Queen, what are these series of unlikely events that happened to, for her to end up there? Okay, well, the first thing is, as I said, Henry VIII brings her into the succession. The second is that Edward VI um, dies young and his uh, sister, in some ways unexpectedly, took the throne because a challenge was mounted by Lady Jane Grey, who was Protestant, his sister Mary was Catholic. And so, you know, in some ways it was unforeseen that she would take the throne and by taking the throne, then Elizabeth was next in line. And the next unforeseen event was that Mary Tudor, married to the King of Spain, didn't have a child. And although some Catholics wanted to prevent Elizabeth coming to the throne because they knew she was a Protestant, they couldn't really do it. She had too much support from family members, from Protestants, and Mary herself recognised it would be going against the whole idea of the divine right of kings if, if uh, Elizabeth were to be excluded from the throne. So Mary is then married to uh, Francis uh, II of France 
at age 15. Yes. Correct. Okay. And what does yes. Mary... So her, yes. Sorry, the King of France dies in a jousting accident, another unforeseen event. Wow. And so Francis, who's still very young, and Mary, who's young, they become King and Queen of France in July 1559. And Elizabeth, has already become queen in November the preceding year. And what is it that happens that sets Elizabeth off? What does Mary do to make her upset, I'm assuming? Yeah, makes her very upset and very <laughs> worried. Because what Mary does is implicitly, implicitly make a, a challenge to Elizabeth's throne. Because what she does is quarter the arms, the royal arms, um, which appeared on crockery, which appeared on curtains, you know, you name it, the royal arms were there. And she quartered it so that the arms that she displayed were of France, Scotland, which she had every right to, but also England and Ireland. And that meant she was effectively saying, I am the rightful queen of England and Ireland, not you, Elizabeth, you're a bastard. <gasps> Was Mary aware that Elizabeth would take issue with this? It's very difficult to know. Uh, I mean, if she wasn't aware, she should have been aware. But I think she felt at that time that she was protected by the French, and the French might very well back her claim to the English throne. And so it was going to be part of international power politics. And therefore, I think she probably thought Elizabeth would be too weak to do very much about it. So then what happens when unforeseen circumstances hit and um, her husband dies? Exactly. <laughs> so once her husband dies, she loses the backing of the French. She has to go to Scotland. And Scotland then is a, a, a relatively poor and not a very populous country. So she's in no position to challenge Elizabeth. So what she tries to do is make friends with Elizabeth and try and get a, an agreement with Elizabeth that Elizabeth will name her the rightful successor to Elizabeth if Elizabeth has no children. And in return, she won't make any claims to the throne while Elizabeth is alive. Huh. And so... She goes back to Scotland, and does Elizabeth help her get safe passage? Is this when they start uh, writing letters to one another? Yes. They never oh. meet. Contrary okay. to all the film portrayals, they never meet. And their communication is either through diplomats or letters. Some letters written in their own hand, which is a sign of intimacy, and some letters that are written by clerks, which they dictate. Elizabeth does not want Mary to go to Scotland via England because she fears that there might be a Catholic rebellion supporting Mary and that Mary might plot while she's in England. So Mary has to go to Scotland by the sea and not land in England. And she is offended by this. Ah. She hoped to meet Elizabeth. She thought this was uh, a sign of disrespect, dishonour to her, that she was not allowed to go to Scotland through England. We talked about Elizabeth uh, as being a powerful leader. What was she like? Did she have many advisors? Was, was her decision to keep Mary at arm's length her own, or was it a strategy from her advisors? Elizabeth, at the beginning of her reign, did not feel like a strong leader. As a woman, 
there were many who thought that she really shouldn't make decisions herself. She should leave the, the business of ruling to men about her. She also knew that the majority of the people in the country were Catholic. And so there was a dislike of her church settlement. So she didn't feel strong. She builds up confidence and strength as the reign goes on. I think Elizabeth wanted to, to make friends with, with Mary. I mean, in simple terms, she didn't think she could afford to alienate Mary, but she recognized that Mary was a danger and she listened to men who were her advisors, most notably William Cecil, who was her principal secretary, secretary of state, we would call him. And he is incredibly hostile to Mary, Queen of Scots. The last thing he wants is for Mary, Queen of Scots, to sit on the throne of England. He fears that she will behave as a, a persecuting Catholic. And that obviously is something that he, from his religious standpoint and his political standpoint, he really couldn't bear the thought of. So once Mary, Queen of Scots, is back in Scotland, what is happening with her? Did and we know that she eventually marries Lord Darnley. Can you tell us, did Elizabeth have anything to do with this marriage? Was it a setup? Elizabeth did not want her to marry Lord Darnley uh, because Lord Darnley also had a claim to the English throne. Um, Lord Darnley was, in fact, Mary's cousin, and they both were uh, descendants from Henry VIII's elder sister. So the last thing Elizabeth wanted was for Mary to marry Lord Darnley. In fact, Elizabeth wanted Mary to marry her own favourite, who was Robert Dudley, who wow. became Lord of Leicester. And, <gasps> you know, Mary is again offended that Elizabeth is going to, you know, pass off her cast-off lover. <laughs> Uh, who is a master of the horse. I mean, you know, this is not the highest uh, position. He wasn't even a nobleman at that stage. So Mary is utterly offended and has no wish to marry um, Robert Dudley. But Elizabeth thinks that this is a safe marriage from her point of view. And if Elizabeth, if uh, Mary marries Robert Dudley, then they can do a deal. Because what Elizabeth really wants is for Mary to be her successor if she has no children, but not for Mary to claim the throne during her lifetime. And she wants to do a deal that way. Mary would be happy to do a deal that way. But there are these forces that work against it. And one of the forces is the decision that Mary makes to marry Lord Darnley. Wow. So what was Lord Darnley like? What was well, uh, his view, and Mary's? Yeah. What was it like? <laughs> <laughs> he was about the worst possible husband. I mean, he was very attractive. He was elegant looking. Uh, the portraits of him show him to be a very good looking man. He's described that way. I think he was pretty charming when Mary first met him. I think he was a good dancer. You know, he had the kind of courtly graces, <laughs> but there were lots of things against him. He was um, sullen. He could be abrasive and rude. He desperately wanted to have equal status with Mary. And when he didn't get that from Mary, he went into a hissy fit and he would refuse, for example, to attend their son's baptism. <gasps> I mean, he was the worst. Terrible. Well, one of the worst anyway. And not surprisingly, Mary and Darnley fell out pretty quickly. 
And what what was the involvement uh, in with Mary's secretary, David uh, Rizzio? How how was he involved in his death? Well, David Rizzio, he wasn't Mary's lover. I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, Mary anyway was pregnant with the son of of Darnley. Um, when their relationship was close, she enjoyed listening to his music. Uh, he was her secretary, French secretary and Italian secretary, um, and she enjoyed his company. And because of the bad relationship that Darnley had with Mary and felt resentful about her um, for all sorts of other reasons, he then became jealous of Ristia. And he plotted unquestionably with other lords who were also thought, well, why is this Italian? Have, why does he have so much influence with Mary? Uh, and they became jealous of him too, and they wanted to get rid of Rizzio. So Darnley plotted with them the ousting of Rizzio. But Darnley, it seemed, was not satisfied with the ousting. He wanted Rizzio to be, <gasps> to be murdered. And so when noblemen burst into the private chamber of Mary, who is listening, I think, to music with Rizzio, and then they throw him down the stairs and they stab him. Uh, there's about 53 stab wounds, but they left the dagger of Darnley in him, which completely implicated Darnley in the murder of Rizzio. Oh. And then who plots Darnley's death? Yeah. I don't think that Mary did. Um, oh. She was accused of it. She was accused of by that time, having an adulterous relationship with the Earl of Bothwell. But I think that is unlikely, though we cannot be certain. We do know that there were groups of, there was a group of earls and lords in Scotland who thought that actually Darnley had betrayed them. He'd been one of the assassins of Rizzio, but then he'd gone over and um, supported Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, and they thought he had betrayed them. And they therefore decided that he was a bad thing. He was uh, bad for Scotland. He was bad for Mary. And indeed he was. And so they, they plotted his murder. And the leader amongst them was the Earl of Morton. Um, Mary's half-brother, Murray, was almost certainly involved, but he was out of Scotland at the time. And arrangements were, were made that he would be blown up. In, in a very in a house that was pretty undefended, he actually escaped when the explosion took place, and he had to be smothered. So he was found dead in the garden with his manservant, um, having moved from the house. But he was almost certainly um, smothered by a cloak, or anyway, he he died. Yeah, well, he died. <laughs> <laughs> and he was accused. Of being the guilty party, and why then? Why does Mary uh, marry the Earl of Bothwell after he has been accused of killing her second husband? We don't know, <sighs> and different people have different explanations. We do know that he abducted her. Now, oh. some historians think that he abducted her against her will. Others think she was complicit in the abduction. Some historians think he was he raped her. Others think that they were lovers anyway, 
and they had an agreement to marry. But we really do not know. Uh, and there's a lot of disagreement amongst biographers and historians about this. I'm inclined to think that there probably was a rape and that Mary was dishonoured um, by that and thought the only way to get her honour back was to marry him. Um, and, of course, she might have well have become pregnant through wow. that sexual encounter. Wow. But we don't how, know. We don't know. Okay. How did the people of Scotland react to Mary's third marriage? Well, they thought her a whore because they believed, because uh, there was a lot of propaganda coming out um, by people like the Earl of Morton, like Murray, um, saying that she had had an adulterous relationship with Bothwell. They had conspired to murder Darnley. And so she was treated in ballads, in cartoons, um, as if she was a whore. And a, a number of Scottish lords rose up against her, gathered an army, and there was a meeting of her army and the rebel lord's army. And she, her army, it, it, nothing happened. There was this kind of standoff on a very hot day. And her soldiers began to desert. They were thirsty. They were hungry. Nothing's happening here. And she decided to do a deal. And what her deal was, she thought, was that Bothwell, who was with her, would be allowed to go free. And he would be safe and that she would go back and she would agree to conditions that would enable her to rule. But that wasn't what happened. She <sighs> was put into prison and she was forced to, to abdicate. Wow. And why doesn't Elizabeth help Mary retain her crown in Scotland? She's not able to. She wanted oh. to. She made <sighs> threats. But her privy councillor said, look, if you do this, if you act as if you will give support to Mary, whether it's military or diplomatic or whatever, they'll kill her. The rebel lords will kill her. And so for that reason, Elizabeth was persuaded the best thing to do was to wait upon events and see if there were other ways in which she could help Mary. And so Mary eventually does escape Scotland. And she goes to England. And what happens there? Because I know we all know that she's under house arrest for 19 years after that. What he, happens? Before she was under house arrest, and this is really important for their relationship, Elizabeth wants to get her back on the throne of Scotland. Oh. She tries a deal with the Scottish lords to for them to agree that Mary can go back, um, that they, they will constrain her in some ways, but the Scottish lords are having none of it. They are very happy to see Mary as, as a um, prisoner in England. So we have to remember that if we're holding, yeah. who is responsible for Mary being in prison? It's not just Elizabeth. Um, and Elizabeth is advised, look, don't bring her down to the court. She's an accused of being an adulteress. It won't do your honour any good to receive her. Uh, as a, a fellow monarch, they also tell her, well, don't bring her to court because there'll be plots around her. And then what happens is there are plots around her. She doesn't come to court. But while she's in the north, there is a rebellion, the Northern Rebellion. There are plots between uh, the Duke of Norfolk, an English nobleman and the Spanish ambassador known as the Rodolfi plot. And so it looks as if Mary in, is a terrible danger. 
And so she has to be kept in seclusion. She has to be kept away from Elizabeth. And even while that happens, there are various points during her time of imprisonment where Elizabeth again tries to do a deal where Mary can be restored to the throne of Scotland. Um, Not as a big player, but, you know, perhaps as a kind of queen dowager, somebody in the background who has the trappings of royalty, but no power. But the Scots won't have her back. But and then one is what is the last straw for Elizabeth? Why does she eventually sign Mary's death warrant? Well, there are there are all kinds of plots that are are hinted at, and and there's a one major international plot in 1583 to four, um, which involves Mary's relations. It involves the Spanish king, but you can't pin it on on Mary. There's no evidence that Mary is directly involved. But there's another plot in 1585, which we know is the Babington plot, um, in which a letter was deciphered by the spy masters of the Queen, which demonstrated that Mary was going to approve the assassination of Elizabeth. And so that is what is the final straw for not just Elizabeth, but virtually the whole whole of Parliament comes out and pressures Elizabeth, you have to execute Mary. And the Privy Council, you have to execute Mary. And Elizabeth doesn't want to. She's quite happy for Mary to be dead. And she doesn't mind if somebody sort of poisons her. Or, right. or oh, her. Wow. She doesn't want to put Mary on trial and execute her. But ultimately, she runs out of options. And that's exactly what she has to do. And when she signed that death warrant, did she intend for it to be carried out? We don't know. Hmm. Um, I suspect that she was stalling. She, you know, that she wanted it to, you know, let's just wait and see. I'll sign it. That will satisfy the Privy Council. Let's give it time. Things might change. But, of course, the Privy Council acted immediately and rushed that death warrant off to Fotheringay without um, Elizabeth's express permission. And so Elizabeth thought that was a betrayal. So what was a typical execution like in those times? And and how was Mary's different? Well, most people who were executed for treason were hanged and then drawn and quartered, which meant that their their entrails would be taken out of their body. And also their body would be chopped up and bits of their body would be put on uh, city walls or the city gates. This, oh my this would be a warning against treason. But because Mary was noble and royal, she was going to be executed by um, the axe. <coughs> Unlike um, Elizabeth's mother, who was executed by the sword, Mary um, was going to have the, the blunter axe. So it wasn't going to be a pretty affair. And Mary then, at that point, decides during the the time up to her execution, that she is going to present herself. She's fashioning herself as a Catholic martyr. So she wears the clothes underneath her black cloak or black overgarment of purple, which are the signs of martyrs. They're the clothes, the color of martyrs. And she takes out her rosary. And she does a wonderful performance. Um, But then it all sort of becomes a bit, bit nasty because the axe was not sharp enough and they had to try uh, chopping her head off more than once. I mean, I hope the first blow killed her, but um, it was not not a pleasant sight. 
And then, of course, there's the famous story that the little dog yes. <laughs> out from her gowns. I don't know whether she had the dog with her for comfort or the dog wanted to be with her, but whatever it was, it was it was a very it was a you know story of pathos at that point. Yes. Now we we had some back and forth between uh, the hosts, or my co-host. We were very confused as to why the executioner would try to take Mary's garter. Was that what is a garter? And okay, <laughs> the, garter, <laughs> the garter holds up the stockings. Okay, so it's it's underneath the undergarment. I think there are two possible reasons. First of all, normally when there are executions, the clothes of the executed are given as a kind of payment, part of the payment to the executioner, because these are wealthy clothes. Only the rich are executed with the axe. So they could sell them off and make quite a bit of money. In the case of Mary Queen of Scots, it was denied the executor. So maybe he thought, well, at least I'll get a garter. Um, the other possibility is that they were very concerned there should be no relics. Here is Mary presenting herself as a Catholic martyr. Catholics might want lots of her hair, a garter, anything that is associated with her, uh, and that she might then afterwards become a saint. And so I think that's another reason why there was the attempt to to prevent anything going to the executioner. And the executioner, maybe he... He was sympathetic to the idea of her being a Catholic martyr because that would raise the price of the garter. Uh, So uh, I think they're probably the reasons why the garter took on some significance. Wow. Thank you for clarifying that. We're so grateful to have you. (laughs) So do you think that had Mary and Elizabeth ever met face to face, that the two of them would have been able to come up with some solution to this power struggle? Or was there just bad communication at play here? They were almost on the point of reaching an agreement, even without meeting each other, just before the murder of Darnley. And it was the murder of Darnley that, you know, kiboshed that, prevented it happening. So I think that, yes, it might very well have improved their relationship. But I think that Elizabeth, was and Mary too, they wanted the differences to be resolved. Um, but for a variety of reasons, that some of which I've talked about, it, it was not to be. So at the end of the day, if you had to pick one person or thing, it can be a concept that you think is to blame for the feud between the two queens, who or what would that be? It would be Henry VIII. It would be Henry VIII because in his will, he privileged the youngest sister's family, not Margaret, the line of Mary, as being next in line after Elizabeth. That meant that Mary, Queen of Scots, felt insecure because if the will was followed, she would not have a right to the English throne after the death of Elizabeth. And Henry VIII was also to blame because he bastardized Elizabeth and did not remove that taint of bastardy. And that was what made Elizabeth feel insecure when Mary starts quartering the arms of England and Scotland. So yeah, Henry VIII gets my vote. 
as <laughs> the most destructive of the Tudors and the one who was, you know, set <laughs> set the scene for wow. the conflict between the two queens. Unbelievable. Thank you so much, Professor Doran, uh, for helping us understand this rivalry between the cousin queens. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello, Alarmy. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. Aren't we so excited? <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> I, honestly, that was she, the way she just ripped through those details. I, mm-hmm. I can we ask Susan to be uh, the fourth co-host of this podcast? Sure. <laughs> she might be busy, <laughs> but it's worth it. It's definitely worth a try. Yes. I. I mean, first of all, congr- you know, I'm so glad she explained the whole garter thing. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Because very interesting. Very interesting. And we would have never gotten there. For no. sure. <laughs> no. And also the Catholic element, you know, a big part of that sort of sainthood and those relics that you go, you know, when you go to those old European cities, you see in those Catholic churches, the different relics. I mean, they're, they're so important. I'm sure there's a value there. So mm-hmm. for the executioner to try and nab those garters. Yeah. Now, just off the bat, I know you guys wrote a bunch of notes while we, I was Yes, uh, we were talking. scribbling feverishly. Yes, to <laughs> Professor Doran. Um, so I total, we totally did not talk about this Babington plot that essentially got her to sign the death warrant, Elizabeth to sign the death warrant. So I'm glad she covered mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Perhaps mm-hmm. that totally should have been up on the board. For sure. Um, and what else did you guys find that perhaps we might have missed? Well, of course, there's the Henry VIII, the will, 
Yes. I mean, I mean, she yes. didn't even hesitate, Susan. She just went, what's to blame? You know, usually your guest expert will say, well, it's a lot of things. Could be. No, Susan, decisive, <laughs> on the mark. Very Henry decisive. VIII. <laughs> In his will, he gave, I guess, the uh, lineage to the second sister or whatever. Yeah, the, uh-huh. So basically Mary was on shaky ground. Um, Elizabeth, you mean, was on shaky well, ground. Well, no, Mary, Elizabeth. For when Elizabeth died, was on shaky ground. It wasn't going to go necessarily from Elizabeth right to Mary because of what was in Henry VIII's will. That's I what see. she said. It was like, it, it just wasn't a, a very specific uh, will. He didn't leave the specific lineage because he had these children that he... Uh, you know, had deemed as bastards and, and you know, th- but then he brought them back into the fold. So it was just shaky ground. It's like, yes, leave a good will, right? Leave a specific good will. You've already caused so much chaos in the country. Just leave a will, <laughs> a clear will. I was will. really in- intrigued by her use of this phrase, bastardy taint that she used twice. <laughs> At the very top, and then again when she was talking about the will that Henry VIII left. But it's it's interesting to just contemplate like how powerful like the term bastard was. Right. Wow. I mean, it, it held, you know the that that could. I don't think nowadays. I mean, it's like still an insult, but I don't think it carries the same weight clearly as it did back then, especially when you're talking royals. Like it's not pure. Right. Blood. Right. There was so much shame around you know, being the bastard or, you know, but, but at the same time there, there must've been so many, right. It's not like it wasn't a, Mm -hmm. an uncommon thing. Mm -hmm. It was all over the place. Well, it just adds to this sort of lineage chaos, chaos, confusion that we were sort of, we could have probably put that up on the chaos confusion. That would have been good Mm, too. (laughs) Lineage wise. I also thought it was fascinating how she pointed out that Elizabeth and Mary were actually on good terms. Uh, mm-hmm. Elizabeth was kind of a fan of Mary's, yeah. trying to help her out, tried to dissuade her from Darnley, and that they could have even brokered an agreement or they were close to it up until the point when Darnley was killed. So it makes you, you know, almost want to go and revisit that. Maybe the death of Darnley could have been a higher right. consideration for who's to blame. Yeah. It changes the whole, I think, approach to this subject, right? Like to me, knowing very little coming in, it's easy to just buy into the narrative that it was just like two dueling queens who were fighting over power, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But when you kind of get into the nitty-gritty of it, and especially with someone who has more nuanced and like accurate history, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that they were, I mean, there was compassion between them, right? That, that Elizabeth, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was really fascinated when she was explaining how that when Mary was in jail, that in order to in order for Elizabeth to save Mary, she had to just refrain from doing anything because if these rebel leaders knew that she had any sign of support, they would kill her. Yeah. Right. So like she, she would have just let her die if she wanted to die right then, right? She would have shown her support or done anything and let him kill her. Yeah. There's a certain that's a great point, and there's a certain element where Liz's hands were tied. You know, in a lot of these scenarios, Liz couldn't do certain things. Yeah. She couldn't reach out. She couldn't form that relationship, and it seemed also that. Uh, Elizabeth was more of an underdog than she sort of is perceived in history. Like we we were talking about her during the podcast as being this sort of powerful, um, right? Whatever, right out the gate, just really smart and well. Savvy she ended up leader. being very and she powerful. Did, she yeah. did get there, but she was like uh, Clayton said, she had the bastardly taint or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and also she was kind of an underdog, and so there may have been advisors, except for, especially our guy Billy Cecil. 
who's pushing her to, you know, keep Mary at arm's length and all that. So, you know, interesting. Yeah. All, all, all interesting that you, you know, it sort of humanized Elizabeth a little bit for me. Yes. It humanized their relationship a little bit for me. It was just fascinating. Professor Doran really softened Elizabeth for me. Um, and I can almost... It's it's weird. I can almost feel Elizabeth's frustration toward Mary and being like, why'd you marry Darnley? And like, oh, right. I'm trying to help you here. Right. What? <laughs> you know? <laughs> In an oversimplified like take on it, it just seems like Mary was getting some bad information and was constantly being frustrated with Elizabeth. Yeah. And that, for both of them, there was just so many people just meddling. Like mm. everyone was getting their hands in there and messing yeah. stuff up and getting in the way. Getting in the way. Meddlers. So that we should the have meddlers. Pop- Another meddlers. thing we should have put up on the board. So, <laughs> I, I mean, we have, I don't know what you guys think, but I feel like we have to change it to Henry VIII because Susan's point, for me, it, it started there. It, right. He that If he had not done taken these actions, he wouldn't have put people in a position where they are defending or fighting for a certain title. Yeah. It really takes away from, I mean, because we blame, just to remind everyone, we we blame the the desire to reign or AKA the throne mm-hmm. was uh, kind of last minute thrown up there. And then we gave the big slap to ma- bad communication. <laughs> but this is new, I feel like really new information that we just yes. didn't. Look, in the alarmist court, sometimes a lawyer just comes in really well prepared and lays (laughs) out the facts for you. And you just have to shrug and say, you know what? We're going with you. And that was Susan for me. That performance was was amazing. I think we should just zip Henry right on the board, (laughs) put him right in jail. And you know what? Well deserved, Henry. Go to the the alarmist jail. And I think we slap those meddlers. I think we last minute change. We change it all. Wow. It, it, have we ever done that before? No, I don't think we have. But it's we're it's we have a greater understanding now, and it's such a and what's what's so important is that it's it's such a complicated relationship and history, right? That Susan was just able to explain, <laughs> um, so not matter of factly, but just so simply and uh, eloquently um, that. It changes our perspective, and I think we just change it all. So, if I have your blessings, I'm gonna call it. I think yeah. you can call it. Okay, yeah. meddlers, you're getting the big slap. Henry the Eighth, pack your bags. You're going to the alarmist jail. Amazing, and I think also, you know, what did we send? Like the power of the throne to jail. Yeah, I mean, we felt we knew that it wasn't. Elizabeth or Mary. We well, knew it was more complex. We've I, got, but we yeah. just didn't have the. Uh, well, I was going to say meddlers is kind of you know the meddlers are operating, um, in the sort of like the pull of the yeah of the throne of the uh-huh. power of the throne. That's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Well, you know, thanks again to Professor Doran for helping us today, and uh, I hope we can have her back at some point. And uh, to our listeners out there, uh, just a reminder to please uh, rate, review, subscribe on our Apple Podcasts. It's really important to us. If you could leave us a little review, five stars, hey, you know, that never hurt anyone. Um, It would be wonderful. It helps us get more ears out and, you know, ears on the podcast and helps us spread the word. So, and we're very grateful for all of you who have already done it. 
Stay tuned because next week we are going to be discussing the assassination of JFK. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.